Peter Balford and Tim Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a lead prospect analyst emeritus for Fangraphs.com who has recently returned to the site to provide analysis of all stripes. It is Kylie McDaniel. Kylie McDaniel is the guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. And this week on the program, Kylie introduces slash previews Prospect Week 2018 at Fangraphs.com on Monday, February 5th. Uh, both Kyle McDaniel and current lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen will introduce their top 100 list for 2018. Accompanying that list will be all manner of content throughout the week. For example, a chat on Tuesday, prospects about whom they disagree on Wednesday, uh, some Cato pieces from Chris Mitchell on Thursday, etc., etc. Kyle McDaniel discusses prospect week and its implications, I guess. Its implications is a word that I'll use. Also of note this week, uh, what in baseball is like that? Frequently, of course, with erstwhile managing editor Dave Cameron, I would present a concept or phenomena from real life and ask what in baseball is like that. With Cameron having departed, I now subject Kyle McDaniel to that same exercise. Uh, in this case, we learn we learn what an owl's giant eyes can teach us about the hit tool and the nuances, perhaps, of evaluating uh, that hit tool. Finally, uh, a few years ago, Kyle McDaniel named Carson Fulmer the black sheep of the 2015 draft suggesting that despite the fact that he lacked certain traits possessed by the mm, platonic ideal of a starting pitcher, that he might nevertheless have success at the major league level. I asked Kyle McDaniel for a status update on Carson Fulmer and what might lie ahead for that right-handed pitcher. All that uh, in what follows. We'll get to that conversation momentarily, but first I feel inclined and also obligated by my job to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the excellent work it appears in the electronic pages, and for a slightly less reasonable sum, those same readers, if they so choose, can acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of ads, banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership available, of course, only at Fangraphs.com, and then by clicking around a little bit. Uh, okay, let's move on then. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Kyla McDaniel. And when does it begin? Right now. Your question, if I can rephrase, is uh, are you being expected to uh, essentially pick up where Dave Cameron left off in terms of uh, analyzing all baseball every week? The answer is no. Okay. That, you're going to do... That was my gonna... fear. Because I'll tell you this. I've, I listened to, let's say, most of the episodes you two did. And I think I would say every time that you asked him one of these ridiculous opening questions, I would pause and think and be like, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> so I, I don't... I, whatever that skill set is, I would appear to not have it. I'd like to think I'm quick on my feet, but not with that sort of stuff. Well... Here's a, all right. So that might be true. However, I also know that you have some ease with, or at least some curiosity about integrating ideas, capital I ideas, um, into the way that you examine the game. I remember uh, your during your first tenure at Fangraphs.com, you wrote at least one post on uh, Black Swan theory as an entree into examining prospects. 
Some would argue incorrectly, but yeah, my point wasn't to be correct. It was to use the inspiration to explore an idea, which I think some people may have missed. But yeah, I'd, I think you're generally correct in that yeah. assumption. And then, well, and that I, arrived... I often will look at prospect coverage or the way that, you know, even scouts within a team will talk about it and be like, okay, I'm not saying you guys are dumb or you're doing this wrong or, or that I'm coming in as sort of the new guy and saying I've got all the answers, but we could do this a little better. And most of the time they'd be like, yeah, okay, what's your idea? Like, we, you're right, we could do a little better. This is the way we have been doing it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you. So it's possible for you. So I am going to ask you one of those annoying questions momentarily. But I, allow me to preview uh, a topic for further conversation uh, later on in this longer conversation, which is the case study that is Carson Fulmer, because he was, uh, I think, the pitcher that you. I, it was sort of the centerpiece of your examination of Black Swan theory as to how it might pertain to a certain draft. Correct. And the funny thing is I actually referenced, I believe, at the end that people were asking, oh, is there another one? And I said, yeah, there's one a couple years from now, J.B. Bukowskis. I think he would be the next one, Mm -hmm. which you you could argue both of them are similar types to those other guys. But it would also seem to poke a hole in the theory since both of them appear as though they will be a little less successful than the the Marcus (laughs) Stroman, Mike Leake, Tim Lincecum group of players. And there there was another White Sox prospect, too. Sort of a, a sidearming guy who would experience a lot of success despite a wildly different process. I don't recall that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. In a... I believe the, yeah, I want to say the, what was it? It was Leak, Lincecum, Stroman, and Sonny Gray. Those are the four guys that, if you use some not very stringent limitations, those are the four guys that come up with, if you do sort of a search within the draft. And the next guy to meet that criteria appeared to be Carson Fulmer and then. J.B. Bukowskis, I don't know if he technically qualified, but he was, you know, in the ballpark at least. Okay. Uh, Let me ask you an annoying question. Um, This is from the internet. This is a question I have extracted from the internet from a concerned reader and listener. Is it my mom? It's not. Not that I know of. She's not a listener, so I know that's not true. Unless, yeah, and unless her Twitter handle is semi-original content. Semi-original content. Seems unlikely, yeah. Yeah. Concerned listener, semi-original content has provided a link to a tweet from the Audubon Society. And this is very on brand for you. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I will tell you, I'll just provide for you the headline because um, that is as far as I have cared to, to dive into this. It says, owl eyes are astonishingly large in proportion to the size of an owl's head, but this comes with pros and cons. Owl eyes are astonishingly large in proportion to the size of an owl's head. This comes with pros and cons. Semi-original content. Concerned listener, semi-original content asks, Sestuli, what in baseball is like this? Eyes, very large relative to the head, pros and cons. So the interesting part of of this question Mm -hmm. is I told you that I'm not anticipating being good at this. Mm -hmm. And I believe we just talked about in our staff meeting, I think, an example that is like this. Mm Oh. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I may have lucked into one here. (laughs) Okay. So Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst, and I have a lot of top 100 stuff coming up. And one of the concepts that I don't know if it's worth an article or not, but it will be expounded upon and has already been referenced in the Lewis Brinson, Monte Harrison reports in the Christian Yelich post about the concept of the hit tool, not just being like, you probably have a fancy word for this, but not just like some random catch all where you go to the game and watch a guy hit for a few days and you're like, oh, that's a 50 or that's a 55. Mm, Like it's more complicated than that. Uh, And so we've made a point of breaking down the components of pitch selection and bat control, I think are two of the big ones. Uh, Obviously, your sort of, 
I guess you, you use the phrase power on contact. Obviously, if you're a 20 power guy or an 80 power guy, that makes your pitch selection and bat control skills play differently. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's, you know, a smaller but important part of sort of the hit tool itself. The interesting part is in the same way that, say, when Greg Maddox got, you know, really good at, you know, maybe had 80 movement on his fastball and 80 command. There is not an example of a fastball with 80 movement, 80 command, and 80 velocity. Like, in some ways, you have to be deficient at something to discover the 80 when it's sort of a skill-based thing and not necessarily a tools-based thing, like command or movement is. So, like, Aroldis Chapman is not fiddling with a bunch of fastball grips. Like, he doesn't have to. In the same way, I believe pitch selection and back control are the same way. I don't think there is an 80 pitch selection hitter that also has 80 back control, because why would he be trying to improve? You know, Vlad Guerrero would be your sort of classic 80 back control guy. Didn't appear to be an 80 pitch selection guy. Didn't seem to be interested in improving that skill. Obviously didn't really need to. So this is like, the, so uh, so one, one real life example, right, would be like how how one, say the host of this program, for example, upon realizing that he is not very attractive, realizes that if he's going to have any sort of social cachet, that he's going to have to develop some other skills. Is that right? And if you want to use a real world example, let's say, for instance, you are an 80 in the, we'll say blazers with elbow patches on them. And so then you will be a 20 in Bud Light free giveaway t-shirts. Like, <laughs> okay. All there's, right, some, th- there's a necessarily yin to that yang. Right, right. Okay. So you can, yeah, right. Here's one thing that sounds like to me is that pitch selection, and this is not totally shocking, is that of those two skills, right, or maybe they're they're a kind of tool, the pitch selection, pitch selection versus back control, pitch selection is something that one develops in the absence of back control generally, but one wouldn't necessarily have pitch selection and then develop back control after that. Yeah, I would tend to say that back control is more of a tool that you're kind of born with. Similar to speed, you can get a little better, a little worse, but it's it's kind of an innate thing. And that pitch selection, also there's a little bit of a tool to it because I think there's some sort of eye-brain ability, but I think it's something you can more readily change. So I think if you, the guy that I had in mind was uh, Zach Collins, the White Sox prospect who they took out of Miami, I want to say ninth overall a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. He is a below average, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 back control guy with 70 raw power that also has 70 or 80 pitch selection. I saw him in high school actually, and it was a little more back control then. I think he might've lost a little bit of athleticism and gotten a little more, you know, stiffer power based. And I think his pitch selection got better in college and into pro ball. So I don't, I don't think it's always sort of a clean, you lose a physical tool, you gain sort of a, you know, a more of a learn tool. I don't know if there's, it's always sort of that linear, but there, there is sort of like a, a give and take. And that's why the rare guys that are well above average at both, like say, you know, Joey Votto may be an example. Uh, that's why those guys stand out so much. Right, because it doesn't seem like there was necessarily a reason for them to develop it. Although it is an interesting point you make about pitch selection, right? Which is, I think we generally think of it more of as a skill, um, and especially something that's learned once once the bat control proves um, maybe wholly inadequate for the level at which the player is playing. But I think that you, you bring up this other point, which is, and it, I think it, it sheds some light on on how, I would say how we talk about tools. I don't know if I talk about tools all that much, but certainly how you people, talk about uh, me. evaluators, <laughs> how evaluators talk about tools, which is they're, they're physical tools, but they tend to be like kind of strength based, right? There's running and there's power. 
I, I call um, the yeah I call those ability. like football athleticism like size speed strength and then baseball is a little more like wrist and hand and forearm strength and sort of looseness of your actions and like a little more subtle and and less obvious to somebody walking around the street. Right, and even even more subtle is probably this idea of like of sight and the relationship of sight to like making contact, for example, or you know to uh, to be able to discern good from bad pitches to hit because sight is obviously it's a it's a physical quality it's a physical attribute but it's it's so much more difficult to for an for an observer you know for an evaluator sitting in, in the stands to be able to measure sight i mean that's no you would you would probably know this better than me what is the what sort of information do teams generally have regarding sight i mean in in particular amateurs versus professionals Every team for, I don't know, a decade or so has had some version of an eye test that they use with amateur players. I know certain teams, you know, scouts and front office people don't necessarily 100% believe in some eye tests and other ones have more sort of proprietary, like there's been articles written about the Red Sox one that presumably found Mookie Betts. That was like an example. I know some people that are aware of that or use the same system they do that think that's been drastically overblown. Um, I know other teams that have like proprietary eye systems that think they're kind of onto something. I have sort of heard pitches from companies that think that they found the new thing. And I was aware, uh, with teams of like different groups at universities doing research to then develop a thing that can become like, there's a lot of that stuff kind of floating around when the concept is teams are paying say five figures a year and all 30 teams are doing it and multiple different sports are doing it. Like there's some money at the end of that rainbow if you're doing, you know, academic research. So teams all pay attention to it. The scouting bureau, I know for a while, I don't know if they still do, did um, some sort of basic stuff like that that every team got. Mm -hmm. But I'm under the impression teams didn't really use it that much because they wanted to do their own. So it's definitely used. And it's not to say it's not used in like football and things like that. I've definitely, with quarterbacks, it's used a lot. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, everyone's aware of it. As far as I know, no one has figured out a, you know, sort of silver bullet solution to everything. But I think people are looking for it. And teams are using you know differing amounts of resources to try to get there right yeah essentially because it's it, as, you, as you point out and, and i believe that the word that was used that you mentioned with regard to the red sox slash mookie bets that was neuro scouting i think that was the term yeah. that at least emerged in, in the public sector from that but it is true because it's not just vision it's not it's not just like vision does this guy does it does a player have 2020 vision or whatever it's the the rate at which the hitter the player is processing information visually and so it really is it really is more of a question of that player's essentially the neuro process yeah no i mean nobody can verbally say that's fastball quick enough before the fastball gets there so it's it's all in your brain and obviously some people can recognize it and then it can't get to their brain i don't know if we can really tease out the different elements of that but yeah the if you can recognize it with your eye, but your brain doesn't process it, then it's obviously useless. And it's really hard to make sort of tests to tease out who's good at one, who's good at the other, how to improve at one, how to improve the other. Like it, it, you can see why that's a complicated situation and why the margin for error is so small when you're talking about, you know, the difference between a not big league hitter and big league hitter with the same physical tools is split, you know, less than a tenth of a second. So, you know, obviously the calculations in the study have very small margin for error. So I think that's why there hasn't been like a huge solution. And I know from 
uh, seeing some of this data and seeing how it's used or maybe go to a new team and they're like, oh, this is your first year in the draft room. Here's kind of how we talk about I stuff. And this is what, and I go, okay, that seems really interesting. And then they'll be like, yeah, but we don't really buy it because it gave us these sort of (laughs) solutions here, which ended up not really, like it said, this guy can really hit and this guy really can't. And the the outcome was the other way around. And then we went and asked the guy that administers the test. And he's like, well, sometimes you have to do the test three times to be sure. And so the more you use it, these different sorts of tests or, you know, products, you kind of find the limitations, even if the presentation is very, you know, sort of whiz bang, like, oh, yeah, this this should do it. And it's just like, yeah, but this is probably isn't the thing. Right. So so the it's a possibility that if you actually had like if you had somehow pure data regarding it, you know, that, that in a platonic sense that these skills exist, but being able to identify them. But the, the technology, I guess, to identify them does not really exist or does not appear to be producing actionable results. If it is, some team has it, we'll find out in a couple of years when they have been hitting on hitters way better than everybody else. And then eventually somebody will try to replicate it. But uh, for example, there have been a couple of teams that I know me and Eric have talked about, like the Yankees, the Dodgers, a couple of the more progressive player development teams seem to know something about whether it's you know growth plates and strength or it's biomechanical change of delivery or an arm action this way or you know whatever it is it seems like a handful of those teams know something that the other teams don't know there doesn't appear to be that on the hitter side there's not some team that seems to be beating everybody on hitters right and you're you're referring to like like in the yankee system i think famously right which is like like why chad green is throwing 98 miles and there's also like you know i'd say an, an unusual maybe not statistically significant, but an unusual amount of like, oh, random guy signed for 10 grand of the Dominicans throw 96 two years later. Like every team has those, but it seems like they've had more recently. And for like a couple different years, people have been saying like, how does every guy throw a 95? And uh, what, how, how come they have 10 guys eligible for the rule five that every team is like trying to talk themselves into and the other teams all have zero or one, you know, little stuff like that. And there's, you know, Obviously, like I said, they're they're both on the progressive end of the spectrum when it comes to player development. So I'm sure there's some sort of research and development end of this, but I don't think a lot of people outside of those organizations know exactly what it is. And maybe people inside those organizations think they've just, you know, done a little better job of executing their plan and they're not they don't necessarily have a secret answer. I I I okay. I had mentioned so, in a chat last week that I think the thing that the Yankees amateur, you know, draft scouts do better than other teams is not that they have better progressive ideas or better scouts, but I found that their department, I think, fuses those two things together better. Like, I don't hear their scouts complaining about their numbers guys or their office guys complaining about their scouts. Like, they, they all seem to be doing the same stuff. And almost every other team, there's some level of sort of, you know, friction between the two sides because it's perceived as two sides. And is that just a, is that just a question of, of sharing information, sharing information in a way that is somehow i don't know honors what i mean i don't know if i mean that's like a yoga word right but it's um but like in a way that honors the contributions of the other yeah and i think one way to get that stuff like if you're taking over a team tomorrow i know that's something you've dreamt about for a while the Mm -hmm. best way to get something like that to happen organically would be to force them to work together and then after two years the numbers get a couple guys that the scouts wouldn't have gotten and the scouts get a couple guys the numbers wouldn't have gotten and everybody's like hey i don't necessarily love that guy that's on the other side and he doesn't necessarily love me but we look better if we work together and then you eventually become friends like i think that's the way to sort of make i don't know if that's what happened but uh, I've, I've seen examples like on a very small scale of that happening where you don't get buy-in good stuff happens and people are like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna skip all of the stuff that makes me hold my nose and keep getting good results 
And I, I think that's okay. where the answer somewhere in there. All right. So it's so to return to the original prompt, owls. Uh, it was the question of it was the question of owl eyes. Now, to be fair, I did not actually um, examine what the the added strengths and weaknesses are. But uh, one could presume that larger eyes probably I mean, owls famously have uh, like telescopic vision, right? I would assume that the proportion of their eyes to the size of their heads has something to do with that. But I also assume a larger eye would make you more vulnerable. Like if you're, I mean, just imagine if your whole head were eye, you'd probably get injured a lot. I don't know if Zach Collins In is more likely to get injured because he has good eyesight, but <laughs> we may be extending the metaphor eyes? too far. <laughs> he looks yeah, like a right. Pixar character. No, but, but, yeah. <laughs> but no, but the point is that, right, so there's, Anytime there's a sort of natural, to some degree, it's a zero-sum game, right? If you develop, if if you have one quality that's that's particularly well developed, it usually comes. It usually suggests there's a deficit somewhere else. Yeah, it's um. Well, I guess it goes back to the uh, the concept of the superhero Daredevil. It's like, oh, he can't see, so the other senses get better. I guess it's also true of people that can't see in real life. You don't have to use a superhero. But yeah, the concept <laughs> is, oh, your senses are going to just naturally get better while you're walking around whistling, looking at stuff. Like, And I, and I can say from from my you know journey in baseball, having internships that didn't work out into jobs and then having friends that went to Harvard or Princeton that got jobs you know full-time when they were 22 and I'm 26 still trying to find stuff. Like I met people I wouldn't have met. I learned skills I wouldn't have learned because I was forced to do it to stay around. And they worked with the same three people for six straight years and didn't learn to do new stuff and didn't meet new people because their job was to, you know, do a specific thing. And some of them would tell me when they get 25 or 26, they'd be like, oh, you're in a better spot than me. I'm like, no, I'm not. Like I'm like a part-time employee at like a website. And they're like, well, yeah, but when you're like, you know, 35, like it'll be better for you because you have a bunch of different skills and know a bunch of different people and I'm just some guy that if my boss gets fired tomorrow, like I don't have any transferable skills. I don't know if anybody in baseball would hire me. And I'm like, yeah, but right now you're still ahead of me. Like maybe 10 years from now I'll end up ahead because I'm taking this like more difficult path. But I think there's a little bit of, you know, character and resume building and skill building that comes with sort of, uh, you know, hardship or whatever. And going back to Joey Votto, yeah. like he was drafted high and then sort of failed in the minor leagues and then became a superstar. Like I would imagine he would tell you that failure probably taught him a lot. I think we actually have the resources to ask him that question. Because we own telephones? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. We own. We also uh, employ Travis Sacha. That's that's true. He spends quite a, bit, quite a bit of time in front of in uh, clubhouses. And uh, Joey Votto, I think, has been one of the yeah, he doesn't seem He doesn't seem players. standoffish to our sort of person. No. Oh, I think he's been very receptive. Well, that's an interesting point about the hit tool, uh, you know, in terms of looking at it, breaking it down into, into parts. Now, and, and I had actually asked you, uh, this of you during that same uh, staff meeting, which was, do the ranges on these particular skills, or is one wider or one, or one more narrow, right? Like, especially how, and I guess, how do they affect the hit tool? Like, if it, does bat control have a wider range of outcomes? Does pitch selection have a wider range of outcomes? I don't know. Like, if you were to ask me, do I want a guy with a 20 in one and 80 in the other, which one do I want? Like, I don't I don't have an answer to that. I'd probably have to, you know, mm-hmm. somehow figure out a way to grade everybody and then do some research. I would say the thing me and Eric have agreed on is, if let's say we're talking about the same prospect or two similar prospects. They both have 60 power and one has 60 pitch selection and 40 back control, 40 pitch selection, 60 back control. Which one is more likely to hit for power in the big leagues? And we agreed that it's the guy with the better pitch selection because as you get to the big leagues, if you have well below average pitch selection and you're chasing them out of the zone, but you have the back control to hit a pitch out of the zone, 
you're not going to be able to hit the that ball for power. You're just putting it in play. And that's why I feel like the guys that have really good back control but not great pitch selection, so think like a low walk guy with a bunch of singles and doubles like Starling Marte would be an example. Mm-hmm. That guy's not necessarily going to hit 20 home runs. You have to be like Vlad Guerrero to be that sort of hitter and hit for power. You have to have like out like an outlier type of skill in that, in that yeah like he's a 80 back control guy with what 70 raw power and so mm-hmm. he had enough raw ability to get to his power without having good pitch selection but if you tell me you have a guy with 60 pitch selection 60 power and 40 back control that guy's like brandon moss that guy's getting to his power and he's going to get walks because of his pitch selection he's just going to hit 240 or 250 while he's doing it and i think isan diaz another guy in the christian yelich trade a second baseman lower average higher power that went to miami from milwaukee and was originally drafted by the diamondbacks i love this context and background yeah he was traded in the john segura trade he is the kind of guy same as maybe pedro alvarez various other guys who can year after year hit 240, 250 with 20, 25 homers. And you're like, oh, this guy's got contact issues. We talk about you know Monte Harrison, another guy in the Christian Yelts trade. Oh, he's got contact issues. He has more back control and less pitch selection. And so we're worried, is the pitch selection going to be so bad or the back control not be good enough to make up for it that he's then going to be the guy that hits 250 with 10 home runs, even though he has the tools to hit you know, 270 with 25 home runs. Like that's the... There's like a much larger sort of precipice between success and failure, or I think it's precipice isn't the word, but there's a, a, a very large gulf between success and failure. And I feel like the mm-hmm. poor pitch selection guys uh, can go from success to failure more quickly, whereas the poor bat control guys, I feel like the Zach Collins, the Isan Diaz types they can go from not succeeding to succeeding a little more quickly. Hey, can, can I actually ask you about that? You, you mentioned um, a couple of players from that, the Brewers-Marlins trade. You cited already Isan Diaz, who's the, the sort of um, the power-hitting second baseman with, with some contact issues, and you just sort of elaborated on uh, not, not just the volume but the type. Uh, Monte Harrison, another guy who's, who's uh, positioned on the on the sort of more challenging end of the defensive spectrum. And then uh, Lewis Brinson uh, was the third. And they're all three are pretty similar in the fa- uh, from the fact that in the minor leagues, they have all recorded strikeout rates that are worse than average. Yeah, they, they all can um, be in a shorthand said to have contact issues and thus risky prospects, which isn't necessarily wrong. Right. It's just, you know, a little simplistic in the ways that we already talked about. But they all have pretty decent uh, defensive upside too, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, all three of them have a chance to play up the middle. So... They, they they bring some reward with that risk, right? So I guess I guess I was curious about this. Is this now, as as some background, one of the most um, noteworthy features of the Houston Astros uh, transformation from well, you know, at first there was the rebuild, and they were just they were bad, kind of in a in a, in a universal way, and then there was the, the uh, they had one season where they played above expectations. They were, they made the playoffs, but they were still a pretty young team. And the most notable weakness on that t- on that version of the club was contact rate. I think they had one of the highest collective strikeout rates of any club in the majors at that point, right? And that was like George Springer, Domingo Santana. Uh, I think maybe Luis Valbuena was probably on those teams. Yeah, right. And and so th- that was one version of the team. But then last year, especially after the addition of like Josh Reddick and um, Marwin Gonzalez. Gurriel, Marlon Gonzalez, Brian McCann made a lot of contact. Alex Bregman makes a lot of contact. I think they produced, if not the lowest, then one of the lowest strikeout rates as a team. So that was that was a big part of their transformation. Now, the question I want to ask is the Brewers here are trading away three prospects with these high strikeout rates. Is this um, somehow 
reveal something about their their own movement uh, because they've certainly stated their intent to be a competitive team, uh, not only trading for Yelich as this deal we're currently discussing, uh, but also signing Lorenzo Cain to a five year deal when there were conversations about whether he was going to get more than three because you know no one else in the market had both of them lower um, strikeout guys. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting that too. So and and we have them trading away three guys. With high strikeout rates, all of them, all, all of them, as you know, interesting in their own and way. Presumably, it sounds like Domingo Santana, the high strikeout guy, may be the odd man out of that configuration. So that would then be six data points toward they seem to value contact, right? To seeming to value contact, and so, but I wonder if there's something, if there's something inherent about the re, the process of rebuilding, and then making the leap towards contention, attempting to contend, where on the what on the, in the early stage of that, getting these athletes with with poor contact skills makes sense. And then on the other side of it, I'm um, getting guys with higher contact rates makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if that, like you would talk to some of these, uh, you know, sort of Yoda like evaluator type guys in any sport and they'll, and they'll tell you, Hey, to have a good football team, you have to be good in the trenches, offensive and defensive lines. And you'll see some of these mm-hmm. guys now saying like, Oh no, it turns out the game is like mostly passing. You have to have a good quarterback and you have to have a good pass rusher. So the game has now changed from, you know, ground and pound to more of a, you know, a passing game. And I think in baseball, I know people will cast a narrative and say, you know, oh, the White Sox won. Oh, it's all about having a bunch of good players, not a superstar. And then, you know, the a team wins with speed or speed and defense and bullpen will be like, oh, those are the things that are important. And then some team wins with, you know, gorilla ball and a bunch of home runs. They're like, oh, it turns out that matters. And I don't think the swings are that wide where it turns out one like obviously bullpen seems to be the thing in vogue now because mm-hmm. that's been what's been successful the last few years. And, I, and something I've written have said that I think that's more because the, the sort of strategy of the game is changing to where that becomes a bigger part of the equation than it was before, where, you know, pitchers aren't going eight innings. So obviously the bullpen's more important. And so having a really good bullpen then, you know, does all these things. So I, I think that actually has some sort of teeth to it. Uh, but I don't think there's an inherent way to do it. I think it's more a function of, you know, whatever research your R&D department has done to say, oh, we're in a situation where we need to be lower variance. It turns out this sort of team, a speed and defense team, a contact team, a power team is lower variance. That'll give us a better chance to turn this three years of contention into a World Series. Or in, we found in the playoffs, this has worked the last three years, statistically speaking. So, you know, the Rockies are going with bullpen. That could be what they're thinking. We think we're good enough to make the playoffs. What will increase our odds? Oh, having a good bullpen. All right, so we'll kind of lean that way a little more than we would normally. So I don't I don't think there's a universal right answer. I think it's constantly changing. And I think it's also at sort of the mercies of the market because obviously everybody has limits on prospect capital and actual money capital. That, you know, that's a great point you make about variance. And if, you, if you're a team that is confident about the, the talent on the team, right, obviously it would make sense to, to pursue a low variance strategy. Right, because you're, this is we have a high talent level. We have no mean. We have no reason to to do anything else. Whereas if you, yeah, if you are a team that's rebuilding and or you think that like the level of talent you possess is you know overall is lower, then of course it would make sense to pursue a high a high variance strategy. The analogy I think like in basketball is um, all things being equal. If if one club thinks that it's worse than another, if one one team thinks it's worse than another, they should take more three pointers, right? Because over a if, over a lower number of shots, they could score more points. Or in college, if um, you're a less physically talented team than the other, then run the full court press, and that will. It's essentially like uh, a team that's going to bunt a lot. You just water the field for three hours before the game starts. 
It's like, okay, everyone's <laughs> going to be a lot slower. They're faster than we are. So it's going to help us more than it helps them. Right. Yeah. You have to, you have to find something like that. Anyway, that's, I think that's great. I don't, I don't want to keep you forever, although we're just a little over 30 minutes. I did, I did want to ask you about, I did want to return to this, uh, this question of Carson Fulmer. And so I say for the moment, let's put to, let's, uh, let's say that we have addressed this question. I think that we extracted something from it. I appreciate listener, anonymous, anonymous internet user, semi-original content. Thank you for that contribution. Um, I might actually have uh, one or two other reader questions, but I want to ask you about uh, Carson Fulmer. Just, I just want a status update on him because remember when, when you and I spoke maybe two or three years ago now, Fulmer was an interesting case because he was, at that point, here's what I knew of him at the time. He was a starter for Vanderbilt. His, I think his mechanics were perhaps regarded either as, I think they were regarded as violent Spastic. or... Yeah, yeah, they were. He did not have a classically smooth. Uh, he did classically smooth mechanics. The results had been pretty good, though, and I think that his physical attributes and the quality, at least you know, like his arm speed, were also quite strong relative to other amateur college prospects. Your your suggestion was that there would perhaps be too much emphasis on the things that made him. The things that made him different from other people would be from other top prospects would be overemphasized when the things that made him good uh, would be underemphasized. Tell me what happened from there. So it, it would appear that the negative characteristics ended up being louder than the positive ones early in his career, mm-hmm. where the, the concern was, oh, these mechanics can't hold up over, you know, 100 pitch starts. And largely they have in his walk rates. I'm looking at his page now. has been four or five walks per nine, which... Obviously, isn't going to work, and his strikeouts haven't been absurd. And I think, in part, one of his you know attractive parts of his game is oh, he can sit you know ninety three to ninety six with three pitches that are all above average. But now ninety three to ninety six isn't quite as interesting as it used to be. Obviously, this has happened to every pitcher at the same time, not just him. But so then, if his changeup was a fifty or a fifty five, and his fastball was plus, and now his fastball is a little closer to average, his command has always been kind of fringy. Now it turns into a guy with third, fourth starter stuff and less command than you'd like. Now it's a more marginal guy that's got to do some work. Whereas I think if he was cast in the uh, this Andrew Miller, Chad Green sort of role, where it's, you know, maybe spot starter, but more uh, multi-inning fireman, faces two guys and then takes a day off and then faces five guys. And so then the velocity would play up and the fringy command is less important when you're facing everybody once and you're just kind of, you know, fire-breathing dragon kind of thing. I think he would be, say, closer to a Cody Allen or something like that where you can get by with you know good breaking ball good enough command and good velocity I think the hope is that he would turn into a Trevor Bauer who had similar ability and similar challenges and overcame it and took a little longer than some people thought it would also with top 10 overall pick um, with success in college I think of course Volmer was eligible for the draft this year as the guy he was at Vanderbilt people would see him and think Oh, I don't know if he can start, but that's okay. These days, that's less important with a guy, you know, like the Chad Green, Andrew Miller, uh, that kind of guy being a more important part of the game. And it's more of a, oh, this is a guy that we're going to want on our staff in the playoffs. Maybe he's the number one best guy. and He's a number one starter. Maybe he's the closer. Maybe he's that fireman in the middle. I don't know what he is, but he's a guy I want on my team. I, I think that's a conversation that's happening more now in draft rooms as that sort of big league strategy is filtering its way down to sort of the scouting conversations. And I think he fits in that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, 
looking at his, I haven't done the White Sox list, so I haven't made a bunch of calls on him specifically, but he started almost every game of his pro career. So they seem to be approaching this in, a, not old school, but the way teams approach these sorts of players five years ago, where you're going to start until you prove you can. And now it's like, all right, well, they have a lot of starting pitching in the White Sox system that's getting close. Maybe you put him in one of those hybrid Josh Hader roles and just kind of see where he finds success and, you know, follow that. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's interesting you bring up Josh Hader because I believe uh, the team, I don't know if it was Craig Council or uh, GM David Stern. David Stern? David Stern. He's multiple Stern. He's right. He's, uh, David, and David Stern is the former uh, commissioner of the NBA. That's true. And which one is Doug Melvin and which one is Bob Melvin? Bob is the manager. Doug is the former GM. And which one of them was a character in Bill and Ted's Bocus Journey? Did you know if you get multiple versions of Doug Melvin, it is Doug's Melvin? <laughs> but but multiple, well, ask multiple a, versions of Bob Melvin is Bob's Melvin. Bob's Melvin, yeah. Well, if you ask 100 passersby, who's the GM of the Milwaukee Brewers? They'll say Doug's Melvin. Multiple versions of David Stern is a David Stearns. Yeah. David's Stearns. No, it's David Stearns. It actually flips with him. It's very complicated. Oh, it is? English is very infuriating for people that no, are No, I think it's da- I think more than one David Stearns is David Stearns's. <laughs> I think What's I think the that's past right. tense of dive? I've never been able to figure this out. Uh, divin. D- I would say dove. <laughs> There's multiple wrong answers that are more entertaining than the right answer. That much I know. Who will produce more career war? FIP-based war. Carson Fulmer. Or another former Kyle McDaniel special, also in the White Sox system, also pitched most of his last year at Triple A. In fact, led the Triple A team in innings pitched. Tyler Danish. Oh, another interesting guy. Both Florida high school players. I think there's probably a theme between. Something to be said there. Yeah. I don't know if they've ever faced each other. Now, speaking of Florida high school players, uh, when you did the top 200 list in uh, February of 2015, Uh you listed Tyler Danish as a 50. And you also listed Lance McCullers as a 50. Oh. Lance McCullers, also a product of a Florida but high school. I believe I saw them face each other. They were, they were both in public school or uh, not public schools, but high schools in the Tampa area. Yeah. Well, you in fact, you know, I first saw a video of Lance McCullers on your laptop screen. <laughs> That's right. The winter meetings. Uh, I was. Yeah, the winter meetings. You're like, here's an example of head whack. Yeah. Because his yeah his yeah. went away in a two month period. That's why I thought it was so interesting to show it to you. Yeah, I would I would take Carson Fulmer. I believe not having it right in front of me i believe danish has had the injury issues that some people projected him to have with his uh, much more pronounced delivery issues than fulmer had and i think even mccullers had yeah yeah so i i would unfortunately have to go with fulmer over danish but they're not necessarily completely different players they're in the same general ballpark when they're when they're both right hey here's another lame question you is that the name of this so podcast I, now? <laughs> yeah basically here's another lame question with Carson Stoutley <laughs> so Lance McCullers is a great example of this for me right I have not been following prospects for nearly as long as you have but I have been following them with some interest for a while now but at, just as noted Lance McCullers was one prospect that I have followed with a little bit of interest because I remember that time that you taught me about head whack and we were at the winter meetings and that might have been in 2012 or 13 or whatever right 13 I believe yeah and, of course, this past year, 
uh, he was instrumental in, in allowing the Houston Astros to win the World Series. Yeah, I will also say I'm currently looking at the top 100 that is almost finalized. And currently there is mm-hmm. a player on this list that in their like two sentence breakdown, it will say, I think this guy is a better version of Lance McCullers. And also oh, that's not very that's not very fair to that player, is it? <laughs> and, and also fits in that same mold that we're talking about with Carson Fulmer of I don't know if this guy's a starter or a reliever or somewhere in between or does a little bit of both. And we kind of figure out what his best role is. But he does like almost all the same stuff as Lance McCullers and hasn't had the injury issues. Okay, uh, so you actually just referenced, uh, made some reference, passing reference to that. Uh, I am going to ask you briefly, in, or I'm going to ask you in a moment about Prospect Week 2018. Prospect Week is this better or worse than Spring Break 2018? Should we uh, compare it to that? I don't know. I honestly, I never went on Spring Break, and I don't, I didn't miss it. Well, let me tell you. All right, so I had one real Spring Break. I'll just give you like a two cents breakdown. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. at UCF in Orlando. Uh, a bunch mm-hmm. of us had, you know, done sort of spring break things. But, you know, it's like, oh, we'll go to some place in Orlando. Like, it wasn't like a trip. We said, you know what? We're seniors. Let's finally take a trip. We haven't done it yet. So we drove uh, down the coast and went to the Keys and would sort of stop at the small Keys on the way there and, you know, basically walk across the street from a hotel to the beach and that whole thing. I created something. I believe I'm the first and only to created it. I called it a pirate's breakfast. And it was a combination of Lucky Charms and rum. <laughs> That's so gross. But I was There's never... but I was 20 or 21. That's hilarious. Let's say 21 for the sake of the story. <laughs> There's never like a story that comes out of – you never hear a story of someone's spring break experience. You're like, huh, wish that had been me. Discovered cold fusion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you never, ever wondered what never, you no. ever wonder what happens to the uh the different marshmallows and lucky charms when you put pour rum on them because you cannot find them very quickly it's almost like what uh <laughs> what walt and jesse did in breaking bad when they tried to dissolve that body it's pretty much the same thing it's uh yeah there's never like yeah there's never there's no story where someone comes out having having helped humanity <laughs> well i mean i helped myself in that i didn't have to do that again yeah i guess so that was, was a question of personal discovery yeah uh, in that particular case. So that is true. I did, I did, I was talking, I forget, maybe it was one of my wife's colleagues one time when she was working sorry, somewhere sorry, else. Who? My, one of my spouse's colleagues, you're right. I should have gone with my spouse, my partner, the, uh, my wife, the, yeah! no, only for you, Kyle. It hurts so bad to do that on so many levels. Your whole body it's not is gonna bleeding again. Right <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, it's like instant Ebola is what that is like. Uh, but she, another uh, great name for your this, podcast. This young woman who <laughs> was, um, it's, it's your podcast now too. Kylie. Oh, man. Yeah, that's the problem. You gotta you have some ownership over it. She was telling a story about how they all it was like the day before they were gonna leave on a very early flight. They were gonna leave Florida. And this and they all went out until until it was time essentially to go to to, to go to the airport and they were just they were drunk. They weren't even hung over, they were drunk still. And they had one responsible member of the party and the rest of them did all did a very bad job at night. The woman in question was seated in the back right seat, the back of the rear seat. And uh, what she did was to go ahead and vomit in a projectile fashion, mm. not just so that it hit the headrest in front of her, but so that it splashed off of the <laughs> off of the windshield at the very front. And then they just brought the car to return Cause the, at the car rental place. The funny thing I've learned being a frequent rental car user is when mm-hmm. you drop it off, your impulse when it's like your first couple times doing it is like, oh, I left a you know a bag of Chipotle there. Let me grab it and throw it away. And they'll stop you and be like, oh no no, we clean the cars anyway. You can leave some trash in there, like as long as it's you know not like a huge mess, like any sort of paper trash we'll take care of. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they'd say that for vomit on the windshield. No, I, don't, I feel yeah. like at some point there's like a, yeah, try to clean that up a little bit before you go. <laughs> so what happened was so it was gross as you can imagine, yeah. and so what. So uh, security would not let them through until they went and changed themselves. 
which is not a it's not a reason I'd heard of someone being stopped at security, but it's absolutely like go TSA because that is exactly yeah that's a good one, one of the, that yeah. Uh, let me ask you. You have another vomit based question for me? No, let's talk about Prospect Week 2018. Okay. Um, that's occurring. That's occurring next week. The, the well, it depends on of... if you don't put this out for a week, it'll be occurring now. Uh, here, I want to. Well, let me let me make a, a grand announcement regarding FanGraphs Audio. Ooh. Is that we now have production help? Oh. We now have a producer. Is what I, what I mean by that. And he's listening right now. Wait, is it me? And I just don't know it yet. <laughs> no, no, it's Dylan Higgins. Oh, I know Dylan. It's a very helpful Dylan Higgins who's listening to these words right now. Um, Live, or I, we're I just nothing... in, the, in the future. He's listening to this. In the future, but it's his present. Oh, interesting. That is the mind right there. What do you think the weather's like <laughs> in his future? Well, he lives in the Pacific Northwest, so it actually doesn't matter if the it, bleak what at time all of year it is. Yeah, that's an easy one. Yeah, it's yep, yeah, it's cold and rainy. But a great place to, to a great place to uh, to grow the Milan de Bourgogne uh, grape. Uh, it's the it's the signature grape of Muscadet. If you're familiar with the Muscadet, I believe in Alabama that is known as Muscadine <laughs> because I've had that jelly. The Muscadet grape, or the Muscadet, Muscadet type of wine, the varietal of wine, is, is from the Melon grape, uh, which is uh, frequently found at the mouth of the Loire, uh, but is also is also grown in the Pacific Northwest, similar climate. Sorry, why are we talking about this? Yeah, because I've been re- trying to learn about An- wine. Another name for your podcast. <laughs> Pro- tell me about Prospect Week 2018. Uh, well, we're working out the exact uh, specifics of what piece goes on what day, uh, but in, in a broad sense... Uh, it'll be Monday through Friday, so I guess you know a five day week, a, a work a work prospect week. Where we'll start on Monday with the top one hundred, and it'll include uh, all the fifties that were not on the one hundred. So you get your extra guys, which I don't know, maybe that's an extra twenty five or fifty or whatever it is. We're we're working on that that part right now, uh, and then we'll have a chat on Tuesday, and then at various times throughout the week that we're haggling about right now, we'll have different pieces. Me and Eric will sort of each write a piece of the. Guys below a 50 that we think are interesting, sort of uh, grouped into more digestible things. Like one will be within a year or two of the big leagues relievers that we think could be the random guy that gets called up that's, you know, 15th on a list, but he's got two plus pitches in French command and this guy could, you know, impact your team or here's six Dominican outfielders that all have huge tools. That we, and the, the concept is these are the, you know, 30, 40 guys that we think are going to get better next year, have higher grades next year, and then we'll just sort of categorize them by, you know, like traits. And, you know, maybe you'll write something about prospects nobody cares about. Uh, Chris Mitchell presumably will do something about prospects people do care about from a numbers perspective. Uh, we'll write about graduated prospects. Sean Dolinar is busy at work in his lair doing various things. We'll have some, you know, uh, monetary value of prospect stuff. Uh, and we also have just after that the next week, which I think will be more of a one-day prospect week. All of the draft rankings will go up. So you got all kinds of official um, who's content. Yeah, who's it? What's it? Um, uh, coming to Fangraphs.com. It's a. I will say it's a um, perhaps more well organized than it ever has been before at the site. It's exciting. I think I'm. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to someone else doing it, but unfortunately, I have to do it. Yeah, you have to do it, right? Hey, let me ask you this question. Is it about somebody having big eyes? Because I feel like we really covered that. It's not. Okay, good. Is Zach Short going to be on your top 100 list or any of your 50s or one of your select 40s or 45s? I'm going to be honest. I do not know who that is. Zach Short in the Cubs system. Yeah. I will write. I will do. Is he 6'7"? Because that would be really funny. I would. (laughs) It wouldn't be funny. But it's funny that you think it would be. 
I mean, uh, the simple pleasures. I mean, I have been cast as the dude bro with the Axe body spray, so I, I do have to giggle at dumb things like I'm the Rob Gronkowski of baseball writing. But you're not really like that, Kyle. I think that I think that your return to I think your return to the website will reveal that you're that that's not who you are. We're gonna flesh you. We're gonna flesh you out a little bit, Kyle. I, I appreciate you saying that, bro. You're not just gonna be the wacky next door neighbor anymore. Can we never see the bottom half of my face? <laughs> Wait, what is that from? Home Improvement. Oh, right. Sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, he was he was a type of next door neighbor, wasn't he? No. You know what, though? Um, speaking about uh, uh, sitcoms from the 80s and 90s. Heidi ho, neighbor Rooney. If you'd like to imagine in your head what my six month old son looks like when he's standing up and he, he, he stands up with the assistance of us, his parents. Idiosyncratic like looks um, like, facial hair, frameless glasses, a cardigan, corduroy pants. Continue. It, no. Um, if you ever saw one of the episodes of Alf where you could see Alf's whole body, that's what my son looks like when he's standing up. It's he's furry? <laughs> he's a furry, actually. Oh, no. He's, he's, this, he's is weird, I'm glad, this is a like, weird subculture. This is like the weird SNL sketch is always the one at 1230 or 1245. Yeah, the, 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 ten, what is it, the, the, 12, the, the, four, the 10 to 1? Yeah, 10 to 1. Or you go the 1250 sketch or whatever. The, this is yeah, right. the end of every podcast where we get into No, it is because yeah. like, so occasionally, they, they, for whatever reason, the plot would dictate that you had to show Alf's whole body, but he, his legs would never move. And that's exactly what it looks like when his six-month-old is, sta- six is standing up, just sitting there, just pretty useless. Well, would this – this would probably offend you, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Mm. I also own a six-month-old that is furry. It is a dog. It is a dog. You, you may have heard it during the podcast. There's been a lot of lounging and yawning. The, the, mm-hmm. the dog's name is Scout, as I, I shared on social media, which I also feel like gives me a chance to prove how smart I am because she's from Alabama. And so I felt being from the South and being a girl – I can then make a reference to to Kill Mockingbird and make myself seem learned or maybe mm-hmm, you know sure. literarily up to date, even though it's mm-hmm. you know not necessarily a new book. No, it's not. It's also the job that kept me from having a dog, so I felt like there's you know two reasons. I will. I I have to imagine that it is nice being able to remain in in one place for a longer stretch of time. But that also means I've had to clean up poop out of carpet. Which, you know, I knew that was, you know, on the board, but I wasn't necessarily yeah. looking forward to that aspect of it. How's the housebreaking going? Pre- pretty good. The only time she does anything is when she's been inside for three or four hours. So, you know, it's times when you reasonably could have expected it. Which also means that my my um, penchant to throw myself into something and kind of sit there for four or five hours and finish it, like I have to pull myself away from it. So maybe I'm becoming yeah. more well-rounded or maybe I'm just getting annoyed by this dog. I don't know. Yeah, they could actually... They could be the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. To, a lot to. I yeah, that is true. Although I really liked that when I was, uh, um, when we when we were living at this one place in New Hampshire, we could not walk anywhere really. But it was great to have. Um, and so I would never walk to the cafe or whatever. But it was good to have the dog because she'd be like, "Hey, dude, you've been sitting there for three straight hours, yeah. and that is sad for me, if not for you." She, she has so some. Let's... She has some way to tell me. Usually, if she walks up to me, keeps eye contact, and doesn't really seem interested in getting pets and then mm. does some sort of yeah like some sort of like kind of whiny noise i'm like all right yeah it's like an 88 percent chance she wants to go to the bathroom and it's been a couple of hours so yeah, yeah luckily she has some way to communicate this so are you a buyer or a renter right now of the dog <laughs> no of, of your yeah I'm, I'm a renter i'm in the um i would say the broad definition of downtown orlando not necessarily right in the middle of the skyscrapers but i, mm-hmm. I have a view of the skyscrapers 
So it's, uh, you know, right around there. And there's actually, and you're, I believe that I was told that the people in my building, it's like 40% of them have dogs. Cause it's just, you know, a bunch of millennials that aren't married or have kids. So they just have dogs. You guys have meetups. Hey, Hey, Freon. I've actually, uh, had people send to me, uh, it is a thing called yappy hour, which a thing I wasn't Ooh. aware of, which is dog friendly, happy hour. Okay. Where they, you know, some sort of dog based, uh, group will sponsor, you know, sort of discounted drinks and then people with dogs show up and then, you know, sort of rescue organizations will show up and be like, hey, are you here without a dog, but you want a dog? Come get one of our dogs. So yeah, it's it's not a terrible idea. I haven't gone to one yet. Or I feel like she's just getting old enough so she can go to the dog park. But she the, see, here's the problem. She's very social. Like she will not test the limits of the leash until mm-hmm. she sees a person or a dog, in which case she will take off like a rocket. So she probably should have been, you know, one of these sort of therapy dogs. But instead, she's just, you know, watching me write about Zach Collins and Isan Diaz. So, you know, a little bit of a lower calling in life, I'd say. Or different, maybe not necessarily yeah. lower. <laughs> just to keep one sad man <laughs> happy for a while. And forcing me to go outside every few hours, which otherwise I yeah. probably wouldn't. Do you have a good dog park near you? I found a few on Google. We're probably going to go investigate them tomorrow. It's been a little rainy the last few days. And she um, okay. she uh, may have had an accident inside because she refuses to go outside while it's raining. Like, she'll go out there, smell rain from five feet away, and then turn around and go right back inside. <laughs> Which I debated changing her name to Princess at that point because well you get you get pretty strong storms uh, down in that area don't you which is why I'm now dreading the summer when it rains every at four o'clock where it's going to be a race against the clock to run downstairs and get her to pee before the the uh, the rain comes and right. she will then pee on all the things I own well, I hope that doesn't happen uh, oh yeah I'm so how's the potty you... training with the your your six month old going uh, it doesn't exi- I mean that doesn't exist yeah so I, so mine might be smarter yeah. is that what we're saying oh dogs are. Uh, dogs are a lot smarter than infant children. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. How about this? Dog, dogs can like walk within hours of being born. It, well, yeah, that's true. So I've uh, noticed that when we get off the elevator that she knows where we're going. So there's not a person or a dog there that'll distract her. I'll just like put the leash on her back uh, mm-hmm. and let her walk. And I would think she wouldn't notice it because it's a very you know light leash. Not only does she notice it right away. But I'll be walking thinking she'll just keep walking right next to me and, you know, like a way to kind of ease her into walking without a leash. She will stop, sit down, take like shake her back so the leash falls on the ground and then pick up the handle and hold it in her mouth and look at me until I notice that she's not next to me anymore. And she'll sit there with the (laughs) leash in her mouth until I come back and take it. And she holds it there for me to grab it, like, you know, holding the other end of scissors so that I can grab them without getting hurt. And I'm like, I've... I've had you for like a week. I did not teach you to be this conscientious <laughs> of the leash. I guess I just like got lucky with a good breed. Cause I mean, she was a rescue. It's not like she was trained before I got her. Uh, in fact, I've been told of some of, I mean, she had mange for a little while. Like there was some, you know, some trauma. Uh, yeah. I'm no hero. So I'm, I was expecting <laughs> to run into some problems in the sort of training area. And, you know, obviously there's been a little bit of, you know, potty training here and there, but she also like seems to have like memorized the block and there's a Mexican restaurant where they have like an outdoor patio happy hour, which I've brought her to before. And she's, you know, obviously very into that. And every single time we walk outside, no matter what time of day or temperature or anything, she will insist on walking that way and try. And even if I say no, she'll subtly try to walk me that way because she Mm -hmm. knows if she walks over there that all the waiters and waitresses and people will all go on, come pet her and get all this attention. And I'm trying to get her away from every time we walk, we go to this Mexican place, but she's now become like a mascot for this Mexican place. And I've lived here and had this dog for like a total of 10 days. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, 
the dog's priorities are basically always straight. You know what I mean? They don't really get confused about that sort of thing. Well, like Jerry Seinfeld said, kids are like Halloween because their only, you know, priority in the world is to get candy. And I yeah. and I feel like dogs, it's some combination of food and attention. Yeah, they like that food and food and love. I like food and love. This just got real. Yeah, this just got real. Got real sad. Okay. Have I fulfilled my obligation? Kylie, you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Thank you so much. Uh, nope. Been a real pleasure. Thank you, Kylie McDaniel. Thank you, Carson Sestouli. I'm still Kylie McDaniel with no official title at Fangraphs. That has been prospect analyst at large. <laughs> Who you call large? Pro, uh, lead prospect analyst emeritus and current employee of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>